Good evening and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Tonight we will explore and discuss the relationship between Hong Kong and mainland China, a relationship that weighs heavily on global politics and has enormous implications for U.S. foreign policy. Our moderator, Anthony Sage, is one of the foremost experts on China and serves as director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and as the Daewoo Professor of International Affairs here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Tony Sage first went to China as a student in 1976 and has visited every year. He also has served as a guest professor there at Tsinghua University School of Public Policy and Management and he advises a range of government, business, and nonprofit organizations working in China. Professor Sage also serves on numerous boards and programs that impact U.S.-China relations and influence Asian affairs. Just to name a few, he's a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, chairs the China Medical Board, and serves as U.S. Secretary General of the China and United States Strategic Philanthropy. A prolific author and editor, Tony has written a number of books about China and Asia, including most recently his book, Governance and the Politics of China, which appeared in its fourth edition last year, and his 2012 book, Chinese Village, Global Market. We are fortunate to have him leading our discussion tonight, and I'm pleased to introduce Professor Anthony Sage. Professor. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, you're not here to listen to me, so I'm going to try and move on swiftly. Uh, first of all, thank you, everybody, for coming in this beautiful spring evening. It's uh, nice to see you here. Uh, we're extremely lucky, though, this evening to have with us uh, Miss Anson Chan, who uh, obviously many of you know. She really uh, has had a unique experience in terms of having been the head uh, of the Hong Kong Civil Service uh, under the British rule uh, when she was chief secretary of Hong Kong, and then, of course, being the Chief Secretary for Administration uh, from July uh, 77 uh, through to April 2001. And this really puts her in such a special position to talk to us about past, present, and future of Hong Kong. Subsequently, uh, she was elected uh, from December 07 till September 08 as a member of the Legislative Council of Hong Kong, and although she declined uh, to run again for re-election, that certainly hasn't stopped her from being an active participant in uh, debates, issues around Hong Kong. Uh, you'll see her frequently uh, quoted, cited. Some people talk about her as the Iron Lady. Um, I can assure you that might be true in terms of her uh, defense of positions that she believes in strongly, but not at all in terms of her own personal character. So please join me in welcoming Ms. Chan here this evening. I'd, I'd like to start, well, maybe let just me tell you what we'll be doing this evening. First of all, we'll, we'll have a few questions here in discussion for 30 minutes or so. And then as normal practice, we'll open it up to questions from the floor. And I, I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the moment. But I thought actually what we'd do is uh, start with a little bit of history. Mm -hmm. And as I said, you are in that extraordinary position of having bridged British rule into the first period uh, of the SAR. And I'd like to hear your reflections on that transition because there was a lot of doomsday prophecy 
about what 1997 would mean. This is the end of Hong Kong. The values of Hong Kong will be undermined. A lot of negative uh, views, really, in much of the reporting in the West, in the US, and even in Europe. And yet that didn't seem to happen. Now, we'll leave aside the current period for later, but I'd just like to hear your, your reflections on that experience. Um, I think you're right, Tony. I think the uh, doomsday scenario did not materialize. And Hong Kong transited very smoothly from British rule to Chinese sovereignty. And certainly in the four years that I remained with the uh, SAR administration and serving under the first chief executive, C.H. Tung, I can say honestly that uh, China kept to its word mm. and honored its commitments under one country, two systems, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. There was absolutely no interference from Beijing, nor from uh, the, their representative office in, in Hong Kong. Um, in those days, it was still known as S NCNA. Of course, today oh, it right. is known as the uh, liaison office. Um, everything operated smoothly. The uh, civil service remained a meritocratic, politically neutral, um, and highly effective uh, and corruption-free civil service. So everything, I think, went along very, very well. Uh, but as you uh, intimated, I think we have seen in recent years cracks developing in the one country, two systems concept, and we can discuss that. So, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, I agree with you. I think most people, when they went to Hong Kong, initially didn't feel that much of a change. So what is it that's really been causing what seems to be this recent deterioration? We've had protests about Clause 23, we had the patriotic education, we of course had the umbrella movement recently. How do you see what was driving what seems to be a deterioration and a less effective uh, movement uh, across the 50 years? Um, I think what we have seen in recent years, particularly in the three odd years that uh, Mr. Si Leung has been imposed as the chief executive, that there is more and more blatant interference from the liaison office in the internal administration of Hong Kong, uh, quite in breach of the basic law of Hong Kong's community constitution. Because our constitution states very, very clearly that no organ of central government stationed in Hong Kong may in any way interfere in the internal administration of Hong Kong, which probably belongs to the chief executive and his mm -hmm. team. Um, we see uh, an increasing tendency on the part of Beijing to control and to crack down. And unfortunately, at the same time, we have a chief executive who does not believe that it is his main mission in life to help us defend one country, two systems, and to speak on our behalf in Beijing. So you're not a great fan of his? <laughs> no, I'm sorry to say. I wish I, I, wish I could be, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so Hong Kong people feel increasingly, on the one hand, uh, you have uh, uh, the um, uh, growing income disparity, uh, wage stagnation, Young people grow up feeling that they face a very bleak future. Uh, and at the same time, they see a steady erosion of one country, two systems, mm. uh, chipping away at our lifestyle and our core values. And this really worries people. 
And what happened recently with the disappearance of the five booksellers has sent a chill through the entire community. Mm. Because what it suggests is that today you cannot even assume that your personal safety is guaranteed, even if you book no Hong Kong laws. That's an extraordinary shift. And I, I, I appreciate that perhaps it's rippled across parts of the community that previously felt, well, okay, things are changing, but maybe it's okay. But let me pick up on one thing you were saying. Um, do you think, though, from the beginning that there were different interpretations of what their basic law really meant? In the sense, and what I mean by that is, when I look at it, and I think when you look at it, we look at it very much from a Western, if you like, legal standpoint, that these are guarantees, these are things there. That's not something the Chinese Communist Party is really used to dealing with. And, you know, agreements, rules, regulations, in their mind, is often very flexible. And so do you think even from the beginning there was a sort of an understanding of what this meant that was different perhaps in Hong Kong, perhaps different in London from perhaps what Beijing was thinking? Or is it really just more recently? Um, I think uh, uh, the first point to make is that in our mini-constitution, you can really only um, outline broad principles, mm. the pillars of one country, two systems. You cannot go into every detail on every single section of the basic law. And so to make it a success, there has to be a, a willingness on the part of the sovereign power to exercise restraint mm. in its powers, and on the part of the SAR government, to try and see how far this envelope called one country, two systems can be stretched in order to fulfill the guarantees and the promises made to the people of Hong Kong and to the international community mm. about preserving our lifestyle, the rule of law, and basic rights and freedoms. Uh, the second point is that the China that negotiated with the British on the joint declaration and the basic law that flow from it is a very different China from today. In what sense? In the sense that China is now the largest exporter of goods and services. Right? It has increasing economic clout, and it can be forgiven for believing that the rest of the world are so keen to do business <laughs> with China that they're prepared to accept any terms. And so there is a gr growing feeling, I don't think it's a unanimous voice, but there's a growing feeling, particularly amongst the hardliners in Beijing, that, well, who needs Hong Kong today? You're a pain in our side. We've given you all these you know, economic benefits, and yet you are still ungrateful. Mm. So there's a view that if you continue this way, then we'll just crack down even harder. Uh, and maybe we don't need Hong Kong uh, after all. So we pull in one direction, and they pull in the other direction. Yeah, I'd like to come to that, back to that uh, in a moment, the value of Hong Kong as Hong Kong and also why we should care about it. But b before we get to that, I, I just want to move a little bit further. You characterize Hong Kong and China as uneasy bedfellows. I think you've begun to touch on that in your last comments. But what is really driving that on, uh, unease uh, on the two sides, do you think? I think fundamentally, you know, despite the fact that we're all yellow skin, <laughs> <laughs> we have a different mindset, a different culture, uh, 
Uh, we've grown up uh, with a liberal education and live in an open and pluralistic society. We're used to free thinking. Mm, we can criticize the government, and the worst that can be inflicted is that you get a rap on the knuckles, but you're not <laughs> going to be put away in prison. Whereas the situation in mainland China is entirely different. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and I think also uh, that the way they are cracking down on Hong Kong, to me, uh, signifies a degree of lack of confidence in the leadership in Beijing. And perhaps it shouldn't come as a total surprise because, quite frankly, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, his team, they have formidable challenges and a lot of thorny problems mm. uh, on their side. But the communist you know, <laughs> fundamental uh, view is that they have to have control. Mm. Mm. And at the first sign that they may lose control and therefore risk instability, their natural instinct is to crack down very, mm. very hard. Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate, obviously, here generally about the Xi Jinping leadership and whether what we see as harsher policies are born out of fear or whether they're born out of strength. But I also wonder, do you think the leadership in Beijing really understand Hong Kong? I'm beginning more and more to feel that uh, they really do not know what makes Hong Kong tick. Mm. Uh, in their minds, you can have sustainable economic growth without political freedoms and mm -hmm. basic you know, human rights. Mm. They put it in two entirely different compartments. Whereas we in Hong Kong know mm, that Hong Kong's economic success rests on the fact that we have the rule of law, mm, uh, a corruption-free civil service, and we have basic rights and freedoms. Particularly important are rights like freedom of expression, freedom of publication, free flow of information, etc. Mm. This is what has made Hong Kong strong. And this, I'm sure, was what persuaded Deng Xiaoping way back in the 1970s to craft this very visionary concept of one country, two systems. Mm. Yeah, it was also, I think, with, uh, with an eye also to Taiwan as well. Yes. That if this worked in that environment, yep. this might be persuasive to Taiwan. It doesn't look perhaps so positive for no. people in Taiwan at the moment. I mean, in many ways, what you're describing, I think it's really interesting because one could argue that Hong Kong has everything that is required for a democracy without the elections. Yes. And of course, the British never allowed that either. And yet, you're talking about the kind of infrastructure that really supports that. So where do you stand on this question about the election of the chief executive and nominated or one person, one vote? I know you have expressed views on this in the past. Well, I share the uh, disappointment of uh, the uh, Hong Kong community uh, that despite the promises in the basic law, uh, if you look at the basic law, it actually states that in the year 2007, that is 10 years after the handover, the people of Hong Kong can decide on their own how fast to move towards democracy. We are now nearly 20 years uh, after the handover and this goal of genuine universal suffrage, one man, one vote, seems to be receding further and further mm. away. Um, the government package, uh, crafted on the basis of this very rigid framework handed down by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, would have resulted in conferring mm, fake legitimacy on whoever is eventually elected as the chief executive. Mm. It was roundly defeated in the Legislative Council. So yes, we have not achieved our objective of one man, one vote, 
but at least we have not jettisoned the integrity of our future mm. voting system mm -hmm. by accepting fake democracy. Yeah, but as I understand it, and maybe I'm wrong, you had argued for more of a middle course, rather more expanding uh, the engagement into the nomination rather than pushing straight away for one person, one vote. Or am I misrepresenting uh, your view? No, we were within the constraints of the rigid framework handed down by the standing committee. I see. We were trying to find a middle course entirely consistent with the framework set uh, by raising the legitimacy and broadening the representativeness of the way the election committee for the chief executive um, mm -hmm. is uh, made up. Could you maybe explain, I, I'm not sure if everybody knows about the way the nominating committee was structured, if you could well, uh, just the, tell uh, us a the, little bit. The election it. committee, we're now mm -hmm. left with the election right. committee, is a committee of 1,200 out of a potentially qualified electorate of 5 million voters. <laughs> I don't have a vote and many others do not have a vote. And of this 1,200, I would say that about 900 are entirely in the hands uh, of Beijing and will do exactly what they are told. Mm. Uh, the framework handed down by the Standing Committee would have given Hong Kong people no choice mm, in the people who are presented for election because two or three candidates would be pre-screened by Beijing. And then we are told, now you go away and exercise this vote in your hands and elect from these two or three. So we have no right mm, to, to elect somebody who we would like to see stand for election. And there's a further restriction and that anybody who wants to stand has to obtain at least 50% of this 1,200 member election committee. It's an impossibly high bar which effectively would have screened now anybody in the pan-democratic camp. That was why it was defeated eventually in the legislature, because it failed to secure the necessary two-thirds majority. Yeah. Let's, let's move to more recent events. And of course, we had a forum here a little while ago around the Occupy and the Umbrella Movement. I'd like to get your, your thoughts uh, really on that, the massive street demonstrations, the mood in Hong Kong, at the time, and how you see uh, that having played out. Now, some people are arguing it was a failure. Um, I wonder whether that's entirely true. Uh, you could say it's a failure in the sense that it maybe didn't meet ultimate gains of objectives. But on the other hand, you know, Hong Kong people have been very vociferous protesting against a number of actions from Beijing, the Clause 23, the patriotic education, and then, of course, what you were just describing, this question around how the chief executive would be elected. So I suppose that one of the questions that arises is if there hadn't been that resistance and protest, could there have been even more interference from Beijing? Um, I think it's a failure uh, from the point of view uh, of achieving genuine universal suffrage, one man, one vote, sure. which was what the... Uh, the um, people taking part in this uh, umbrella movement wanted. But I think it has given a rise to um, a, a whole generation of young people who are determined to do what they can to defend Hong Kong's values and our, um, uh, and our lifestyle, mm -hmm. uh, and they are prepared to stand up and be counted. 
And subsequent to the umbrella movement, we have seen a new political movement springing up, leading to some new political parties being um, established, and they will be fielding candidates for the forthcoming elections to our legislature, which takes place in September of this year. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this new sense of political awareness mm, on the part of young people, I think this is where Hong Kong's future lies, that we have this whole generation of young people. They have different preoccupations and different worries from their parents' generation, mm -hmm. and they're prepared to do something to defend Hong Kong's rights and freedoms. Mm -hmm. Well, as you said, I mean, the handover was 20 years ago. So, I mean, a lot of the people now in the colleges don't know what a situation Absolutely. was before yep. 1997. They also didn't experience some of the tumultuous events in China, the Cultural Revolution, uh, student demonstrations in 1989. So maybe they have a kind of different uh, perspective and perhaps different background. But it, it leads me to one question. And in your the talk you gave uh, up at Tufts, you said that, um, a couple of days ago, that most people in Hong Kong were not interested in independence. They really wanted to preserve the values, freedoms, and lifestyle that makes the city so special. city is certainly special, no doubt about that. But I wonder, is, is the middle ground beginning to disappear? And is there also a generation gap growing up between the younger students and pan-democrats and those who've been fighting for the last 20 um, years? Uh, yes, there is possibly a generational gap, but I think also the different perspectives on the part of the young people as distinct from their parents to some extent has been caused by the uh, uh, government itself uh, in this sense. The Hong Kong government. The Hong Kong okay. government, in, in this sense, that those who advocated a middle-of-the-road course particularly in constitutional reforms, like my own little think tank, Hong mm -hmm. Kong 2020, and many other academic uh, organizations, they have not been able to persuade the government to accept this. So to the minds of the young people, they've actually said this to me in so many words, look, we've tried your way, your moderate way, it's all fallen on deaf ears, so now we are going to try our way and unfortunately, their way sometimes involve very extreme action, including a push for independence. This new phenomenon called localism right. is really an expression of young people, particularly young people, but not exclusively young people's wish to preserve our lifestyle, mm, not to allow mainland culture, some of the worst aspects of mainland culture, to creep into ho Hong Kong. This is what localism is about. Mm -hmm. Yes, there, are, there is a very small number of people who say uh, we want independence. In fact, uh, the government and Beijing should be worried that there has recently been established in Hong Kong a party called the National Party, right. whose avowed objective is, first of all, we do not accept the basic law. Secondly, we are going to use whatever means possible to push for independence. But the bulk of the Hong Kong people know that uh, independence is neither desirable nor is it practical. I think not being practical is, is really the core of the issue. Desirable might be a different <laughs> question. Perhaps when we get to questions, there might be people who are uh, localists <laughs> or <laughs> Occupy supporters. But um, I suppose then um, one of the, the challenges really then becomes, do you see a path by which the current Hong Kong government 
can begin to rectify the situation to get more trust back from the alienation that you seem to be describing amongst key sections of Definitely. If we have a change of chief executive <laughs> and we have elections coming up you know, next year, yes, you can do quite a good deal to change the mood, which at the moment is distinctly downbeat, mm. unfortunately. Okay. Um, we've talked on and off about you know, uh, China, Beijing, please. And um, I wonder, are the things you admire in mainland China? And if so, what, what would you um, say? I mean, we've heard, obviously, the frustrations you have, which seem to be very understandable from the position in Hong Kong. But there's been tremendous development. I, I think that what I most admire is the um, entrepreneurial and indomitable spirit of the Chinese people in the mainland. Hmm. The fact that they and their parents' generation have gone through horrendous you know, trials and tribulations, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, the Tiananmen you know, massacre, and they have emerged really in victorious. Yeah. Hmm. I would certainly uh, agree. They would be even more successful if only the leadership in Beijing would let go sometimes. <laughs> okay. Not so likely, but I think, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I do agree with you. I think that one thing that's been shown over the last 35 years is that when Chinese people have been allowed the space mm -hmm. and freedom, they've been extraordinarily active and entrepreneurial yeah. in the kind of development. But coming back to Hong Kong, I mean, it seems to me that Beijing itself is also constrained. Um, you talked about a sort of a mentality in Beijing. Well, don't really need Hong Kong. We're the ones who've, you know, really allowed Hong Kong to flourish and develop and so on. But isn't there a sense in which Hong Kong is still extremely important to mainland China? And that leads me to a, another question related to that, which is really, why should we care about it? Um, well, um, I think Hong Kong is uh, an important link between East and West. Mm. And we can be a very powerful force for economic freedom and for political freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, America should care about uh, Hong Kong. It's not just in terms of protecting human rights in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a, has a somewhat more strategic role. You, after all, have substantial investments in Hong Kong. You have a sizable American pop community in Hong Kong. Um, we sh have common shared values. Um, ties in, in other than in trade. Mm. Uh, and we have a whole raft of bilateral agreements with your country um, on law enforcement, mm -hmm. uh, on preventing human trafficking, terrorism, um, money laundering, etc. Now, all these agreements are predicated on the basis that we have a totally separate legal mm, and political system. Mm -hmm than that prevailing in, in mainland China. Yeah. You know? If that changed, mm, then you should, you should be worried. Mm. And it also, I think, it directly affects China because China's commitment to international obligations, mm, you, you should be observing to see how they treat its obligations, which after all are embodied in an international treaty signed by both 
Britain uh, and China. That is its commitments to honor one country, two systems. If they choose to walk away or they're allowed to walk away with impunity, then that should tell you something about mm. China's commitment to all its other bilateral treaty agreements with your country and with other countries. Of course, Britain hasn't been playing a very great role well, in this process yes. either, I would But at least even the foreign secretary, after the uh, disappearance of the booksellers, mm, was forced to, to point out that this uh, is the most serious breach of one country, two systems yet since the handover. Yeah, I mean, it took something, I think, that extreme maybe to wake up uh, some of the British politicians. I'm not sure Chancellor of the Exchequer has been quite so concerned uh, about those issues. Um, I mean, if the Panama leaks are to believed, uh, Hong Kong also has a very important role for <laughs> senior leaders in China and their families as a path for investments uh, around the world. So they might also not want to disturb that. We're going to open up I in a moment, but I thought just last thing I I'd like to ask you is, is just about you personally and your motivation. You're the first woman, the first ethnic Chinese to become head of the Hong Kong Civil Service. You retired in 2001. As I said earlier, you came back, you were elected into LegCo, and you've been a very strong voice uh, for pushing forward the democratic um, cause. So what is it that motivates you to remain so passionately involved in the civic and political life of Hong Kong? Well, first of all, uh, I'm a product of a very liberal education, uh, and to have had the good fortune to live in an open, pluralistic society. Uh, Hong Kong has been very good to me and to my family, and as long as there is death in me, um, I feel I need to do whatever I can, if only to arrest the rate of deterioration in Hong Kong's lifestyle and our core values. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of Martin Luther King's uh, words, and his words are these. We should ex accept finite disappointments, but never lose infinite hope. <laughs> so <laughs> I wake up every day <laughs> recharged uh, and ready to see what can be done <laughs> to preserve and protect our beloved city. Well, I think you're an inspiration to many. We'd <laughs> like to open up. Uh, thank you. <laughs> We'd like to uh, open up now to questions from the floor. There are microphones here, here, up the back. Please, if you have a question, go to the microphone. Uh, basic, simple rules. Um, tell us who you are. And remember, a question ends with a question mark. Uh, to give more people the time to raise questions, please make your questions sort of uh, brief. We have a gentleman up here who's going to get us started. Hi, my name is Ben Cohen. I'm a student over at the business school and actually lived in the mainland for four years. In your opinion, was the umbrella movement productive for the relationship with, uh, between Hong Kong and Beijing or not? Um, productive? I think it depends on what you mean by productive. Yes, did it, um, did it touch a raw nerve? In, in the leadership, maybe it did. Um, I think the, the, the color revolution uh, and the thought that something like that can happen in Hong Kong undoubtedly, you know, caused uh, <laughs> some, some, some unease. But it's productive in this sense, and it is that Hong Kong people demonstrated that when you trample all over 
the promises laid down in the Joint Declaration and the Basic Law, then Hong Kong people are not content simply to sit back and take it. They will stand up and they will make their voices heard. And in terms of preserving what is good about Hong Kong and enabling Hong Kong to continue its unique contribution, not only to sustaining economic growth in the mainland, but also to helping our country modernize and become a fully-fledged member of the international community. Yes, I think it was productive. Thank you. Thank that you. was a great example, succinct and to the point. The gentleman here. Hi, uh, my name is Wang Huizhe, uh, Wang Huizhe. Uh, I graduated from Peking University. I'm currently a PhD student at Harvard University. Uh, my question is, after the vote down um, of constitutional reform, uh, specifically executive um, election uh, last June. Um, so what's the, what is the practical next step for the, um, such reforms? And um, uh, I remember reading the announcement of Hong Kong 2020. Um, so the title uh, strength, uh, stressed on the um, uh, importance of communication. Um, do you think those communications are still easy or possible uh, given the current state? Thank I you. think we have to continue to try and seek a constructive dialogue, um, if possible, directly with the leadership at the top, instead of having everything in Hong Kong filtered through the liaison office and the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office of the State Council, because I'm sure by the time the message reaches the ears of the leadership, uh, it bears no resemblance to the truth. <laughs> um, what's the way forward? now that we have voted down the uh, government's constitutional package. What we and many others are trying to do is to try and uh, make uh, the election committee, mm, and the composition of the election committee will be decided before the end of this year, somewhat more representative. And there are ways and means of doing this entirely within the framework handed down by the standing committee. But it is an uphill battle to try and persuade Mr. C.Y. Leung to accept this. But we will not give up. We will continue to try. Um, I think what the pandemocratic uh, camp should do is to try and garner as many of the 1,200 votes available in the election committee uh, as they can. They have not decided since you know the whole thing is, is a fake. They haven't decided whether they're only well, they're still going to field a candidate to run for the chief executive. Um, but I think the decisions will have to be made very, very soon. I guess uh, there's a reason why passing messages like that is called Chinese whispers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. yeah, hello, Mrs. Chen. I'm Kelvin Lee. I came from Hong Kong. So I'm a mid-career MPA student here. Okay, um, welcome here. I'm very happy to see you here because I couldn't see you in Hong Kong, but mm. now I could see you at HKS, <laughs> which Delighted is to 12 see you. hours away. Perhaps I'm the only Hong Konger here. If you are Hong Kongers, please raise your hand. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have two questions for you. The first Maybe one. Maybe just say uh, one question yeah. uh, so as others have the chance. Your most important question, please. Oh, okay. Actually, the first one is really very simple. I, I would just like to know whether Mrs. Chen liked the nickname 40,000 Chen. I love it. <laughs> I love it. All right, then you okay, can have yeah. the other question. The second question. Okay. So, um, at HKS, we are talking about how we can contribute to our countries, what we can do for our countries. So I'm very happy to contribute to Hong Kong. And just like in this early afternoon, in my class, the making of a politician and announce my 
candidacy for the chief executive of Hong Kong. So in the future, if I really like to run for chief executive of Hong Kong, what advice would you give me? Of course, you can say, okay. don't run. We've got it. What advice? <laughs> what advice? Um, I would uh, say that you need to demonstrate that you are committed to helping Hong Kong defend one country, two systems, that you are going to fight on our behalf uh, with uh, Beijing, that you are principled, mm, you have a high standard of integrity, you clearly have to demonstrate your ability to become the chief executive. But if you can prove all that, then I'm sure uh, you will get considerable support from the voting public. But of course, we all hope that we will all get the right to vote for our chief executive. And preferably no offshore Thank accounts. There's, uh, <laughs> please. Thank here. you. Good evening. My name is Samia Osman, and I'm a medical student at Harvard Medical School and a policy student here. Um, he has never met you in Hong Kong. I actually have shook your hand when I was little, um, and you patted my head too. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is, what's your message to those who left Hong Kong shortly after 1997? Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say that given the current situation in Hong Kong, unless we are able to uh, arrest this deterioration in our lifestyle and core values, and unless we can do something to restore the integrity of one country, two systems, I honestly cannot put my hand to my heart and advise you to come back to Hong Kong. Mm. I think this is something that worries a lot of Hong Kong people. Mm. Uh, what I am trying to do, and what a lot of people are trying to do, is to secure a future for our children and their children. We want them to be able to live according to the values that we have imparted to them. We want them to be able to live in an open, pluralistic society where different points of views can be tolerated without coming to blows. But at this moment in time, I don't see us succeeding, not for want of trying, but I want you to watch the space I want you to try and do what you can, even if you are physically not away from Hong Kong, by speaking and drawing attention to what is going on, by drawing attention particularly to the um, efforts on the part of Beijing to chip away at one country, two systems. I think every voice counts. Thank you. Gentlemen up here. Hello, I'm Brian. I'm a freshman at the college. Uh, my father's from Hong Kong, and I'm a proud Cantonese American. Uh, uh, I was wondering, what are your thoughts on the impact of one country, two systems, on specifically the culture and language of Cantonese? Um, in Hong Kong, we are very, very anxious to preserve Cantonese. Mm? Yes, we all accept uh, that we have to learn and be proficient uh, in Putonghua, uh, okay? Uh, but Cantonese is part of our culture. Mm? Uh, and look at you know, the failed attempt to try and replace Guangdonghua uh, in Guangzhou mm. uh, with Putonghua. It didn't succeed. So we are determined not only to hang on to Cantonese, but also to hang on to the traditional Chinese characters and not have it totally displaced by the simplified characters. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Thank you. gentleman here. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Donald. Uh, I taught English in Hong Kong, and I'm currently a student at the education school. Um, some people have said that the quality of English instruction has deteriorated after the handover. Uh, what are your opinions on how this will affect Hong Kong's global competitiveness in the future? Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid it has. Uh, and uh, you see, we, we don't have a natural environment for speaking English because 99% of the population is Chinese. Okay, uh, and, and so unless the students themselves, young people themselves, mm, realize how important it is in terms of their future and their career prospects to learn English, mm, uh, and language, uh, English is still the lingua franca of, of many fields of uh, you know, studies and, and, and pursuits, okay? And you're right, if our standard of English deteriorate, then it does affect Hong Kong's uh, competitive uh, edge. It's not helped by the fact that we have a government um, that does not honor uh, what is laid down in the basic law, and that is that both Chinese and English are Hong Kong's official languages. Today, mm, government officials mm, who can and are willing to speak in English are few and far between. Sometimes the journalists complain to me that they cannot persuade government officials to reply to a question in English so that it can be published in English. Mm. So the first thing that should happen is that the government should set a good example mm, and use English. Mm. The good civil servant mm. will always use both English and Chinese. But today you see even a lot of the press releases issued by the Hong Kong government mm, are only in, in Chinese and not in English. So the government has to set a good example. But the people have to be motivated and they have to create opportunities for themselves so that they learn and practice and speak and write English. Sorry, one, just one thing of clarification. When you're saying <coughs> not uh, speaking Chinese, do you mean Cantonese or do you mean Putonghua? Well, I, I think the, the government is trying to encourage people to be proficient, not only in English, but also proficient in the dialect of Cantonese and Putonghua. Okay. Yes. Uh, yes, the gentleman here, please. Hi, my name is Tanner. Um, I'm actually a medicinal chemist at Novartis down the street, so I'm no expert on the field. But earlier you mentioned the importance of uh, the youth in Hong Kong and their desire to keep the current lifestyle they have and they've been used to. Um, what about the youth of mainland China? I mean, I'm sure they're a lot more liberal than the older generation. And as people our age start to come into power, do you think they'll start to question, you know, whose, whose dream is this anyways, and they'll continue to fight? Or do you think they will sort of help, like the Hong Kong youth, sort of create more change? I don't think that the aspirations of the average youth in the mainland are very different from the aspirations of Hong Kong youth, okay? Uh, but for the time being, the general perception is that the young, mm, uh, of course, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's, we shouldn't generalize too much, but the average youth in, in China seems, for the time being, to be uh, more interested in raising their standard of living, mm, in, in making money. Um, uh, but 
they are also increasingly very curious about what's happening in, in the world. Uh, there are ways and means of getting around the restrictions on what they can see and hear. For example, you can't access Google, you can't access Facebook, but nevertheless, they can find ways, despite <laughs> the hundreds of thousands of uh, people being employed to censor what people can see or, or read. So I think over time, it's a natural involvement in the whole democratic process after basic needs have been satisfied that the people themselves will be demanding change. They will be demanding, first of all, more open, transparent, and accountable government. We're not saying at the moment that people in, in China, particularly the young people, are pressing for one man, one vote. But we do have, actually, people, including young people, coming to take part in Hong Kong's July the 1st annual demonstration, mm, taking part in the traditional annual uh, candlelight vigil to commemorate 1989 Tiananmen uh, incident. Okay. So I think Hong Kong, mm, by the way we conduct ourselves, mm, by sticking to our basic rights and freedoms, particularly revolving around the rule of law uh, and toleration for different points of view, uh, I think we can set a good example. And, and when the day comes, and I am convinced that the day will come, when our country mm, opens up politically, then we can offer a lot of very valuable advice in, in simply in the health of our institutions, our civil society. Lady here, up there. First, thank you very much for sharing your op opinions. My name is Yuan. I'm from Boston University. I'm currently a PhD candidate in economics. And first of all, I come from a small city in the northeast of China. And I never been to Hong Kong, but I'd like to go, to go there. Uh, I have been studying here for five years already, and my question is related with the economy, which is what's your view on the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank currently formulated, and what's the government's view on this AIIB? Uh, I, think, uh, I think the AIIB is a very good idea. Uh, uh, I think China has felt the need to set up uh, this uh, bank maybe because they feel they're not getting sufficient you know, assistance from the traditional you know, international organizations that exist. And to the extent that they can provide uh, the credit and help uh, whatever it is, infrastructural building and, and other things, I think the end product must be good for China and for all the participants in this AIIB. And particularly for Hong Kong econ economy, do you think this bank will have a, like a strong impact on? Um, I, I think it, uh, it remains to be seen. Okay. But I think for the time being, there isn't a lack of, as it were, credit facilities right. in terms of supporting <laughs> you know, <laughs> projects in, in, in Hong Kong. Okay. Thank yes, you. Yes, please. Hello, Mrs. Fang, uh, Mrs. Chen. Yes. Um, uh, my name is Carrie Jiao, and I'm a, a MPP student here in Kennedy School. Uh, I have a relatively short question, so I'm just wondering, what do you think is the uh, increasing uh, tension of the political environment between Hong Kong and Beijing actually influence the uh, economic development in Hong Kong? And how do you think that uh, the government of Hong Kong should do to ease out that kind of tension? Yeah. I you. think what will affect economic development uh, is if China is seen to be more and more mm, departing 
from the guarantees in the basic law, yeah? particularly uh, if the independence of the judiciary goes, if there is no longer freedom of expression, freedom of publication, uh, and free flow of information. There is increasing concern amongst the com business community yeah, at the erosion of these basic rights. You will notice that recently, Moody and Standard & Poor have downgraded the credit rating of Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they cited is the increasing political interference from Beijing, yes. So if that happens, I think foreign investments will take flight. Okay, there's a gentleman here. Hi, Ms. Chen. Uh, my name is Michael Lern. I'm a law student from Harvard Law School. Uh, so I'm very happy to see you here. Since Thank you. Uh, the topic of your speech is, you know, goes very close to my heart. Uh, my question is about the rise of localism in Hong Kong. And I just want to ask, uh, what do you think uh, is going to ultimately happen uh, in terms of Beijing's reaction to it? And also, um, what should the moderates or the middle ground, the traditional pandemocrats do uh, as a response to the localism movement? Yeah. Uh, as I have pointed out earlier, localism is, is not about pushing for independence. It is simply an expression uh, on the part particularly of young people that they care about Hong Kong's core values. They want to preserve Hong Kong's culture and Hong Kong's core values, okay? Um, I think that particularly in the light of the by-election that just took place in Hong Kong mm -hmm. mm, to replace uh, a vacancy in the legislature, the fact that somebody from the localism movement, a complete political unknown, managed to garner 15% of the popular vote has really rattled the cages of the more conventional camp. And I think in Beijing, they are taking note of this. Um, I hope what will happen is that they will take seriously the aspirations of the young people and they will do something mm, to open a dialogue with the young people. Mm. Uh, you don't have to care too much about the very extreme members, even amongst the pandemocrats. Mm. They are not hoping to persuade the, ex the few very extreme members to come back into the fold. They've just given up on that. So in the same way, I think Beijing should put that aside. They should not be rattled by, by this false claim that Hong Kong people are pushing for independence. They should see in what way they can engage the energy of the young people for the good of Hong Kong. And if Hong Kong mm, continues to prosper mm, and th there's no instability, then it must be good for mainland China. After all, Xi Jinping has plenty of thorny problems on his plate. <laughs> I think he really doesn't want to bother about Hong Kong. We all know in Hong Kong there are one or two issues that touches a raw nerve. For example, you cannot stand up and say down with the one-party system rule. But other than these one or two uh, sensitive issues, the rest of the time, I think Xi Jinping would rather that the chief executive can go away, mm, properly administer Hong Kong, and win the support of the Hong Kong people. What, what about the... Sorry, uh, let's uh, give someone else a chance. Uh, there's quite a queue here, so I'd, let's take another question from this microphone. I, 
I notice people are going upstairs because they see it's a shorter queue. So <laughs> let, let's, let's take a second question from this microphone. Then I'll come to the two people up here. Okay. Uh, my name is Sharon. Um, I'm a law graduate from the University of Hong Kong. And I'm also at Harvard Law School now doing a master's degree in law. And thank you so much for coming today. I'm really happy to see you. And my question is, um, so democratization has shown very extremely little progress in China in the past years. And I think um, Hong Kong people and the Beijing government has fundamentally very different sentiments towards democracy, the notion of democracy, and maybe also the interpretation of what universal suffrage means. So given this context, the difference in democratization um, in two places, in, in China and Hong Kong, um, how likely is Beijing government um, going to allow Hong Kong to have the true democracy that the people in Hong Kong wishes for? And also, what does this mean for the feasibility of one country, two system, fundamentally? Well, we are often told uh, uh, that uh, there is extreme concern about the so-called contagion effect. That is, if Hong Kong people get one man, one vote, then how can the leadership uh, turn down a similar request from mainlanders? Okay. Well, I would simply just point out that in the basic law and in the joint declaration, but particularly in the basic law, Beijing made a solemn promise to the people of Hong Kong that there will be universal suffrage. Furthermore, the basic law points out that the two important international conventions that define what is meant by universal suffrage, and I don't think I need to point out to an American audience what is meant by universal suffrage. It means that you not only have the right to vote, but you also have the right to stand for election. Those promises are laid down in the basic law, and all Hong Kong people are asking is that you honor those promises. Furthermore, we want to try, we're not succeeding, but I think we have to continue to try, to persuade Beijing that they have nothing to fear in giving Hong Kong people one man, one vote. That is, in fact, the best way of securing Hong Kong's long-term stability and prosperity. Gentlemen, here. Thank you. My name is Athens, and I'm born and raised in Hi. Born and raised in Hong Kong, I come from MIT. My question is, to what extent do you allow the unrest you see, umbrella movement, uh, what happened uh, lunar first day in Lunar New Year, is to do with uh, social economic issues, namely, say, very unaffordable housing and less so with political structure? Yes, uh, that, that is a factor. Uh, first of all, there is a growing income disparity. <coughs> and yes, <coughs> young people feel that uh, they don't really have much of a future. Uh, uh, housing seems to be beyond um, um, their reach, even if they have parents who can afford to help them make the first down payment. Okay, so yes, there are economic and also wage stagnation, but it is compounded by the fact that Beijing is walking away from one country, two systems, and eroding the rule of law and eroding our basic rights and freedoms. And I think the two combine, particularly with what has happened with the disappearance of the five booksellers uh, and, the, and the notion that, uh, as they put it, strong agents in mainland China can have ways and means of getting around the law. Uh, and the bureaucrats in Beijing seem to think they can exercise extrajudicial powers on Hong Kong soil. 
I think that is really frightening to Hong Kong people. So everything combined makes the young people feel that they face a very, very bleak future. But they're not just sitting there and doing nothing. They are at least prepared to, to take action. And we must encourage them to continue to speak up. Lady here. Um, thank you. My name is Claire Su, and I'm the founding director of an arts organization in Hong Kong called the Asia Art Archive. Um, I'm also here as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum as part of the leadership and public policy um, course. I've had the pleasure of meeting um, Anson um, in Hong Kong and want to say a big thank you for your contribution to Hong Kong over the years. Thank you. Um, my question draws somewhat on the, on the gentleman who spoke before. Um, and my question is, there are some inherent um, problems within our society that I, that I would say perhaps are not directly linked to interference from China. For example, a lack of diversity, um, the lack of integration of ethnic minorities, the lack of rights for domestic helpers working in Hong Kong, and of course, the self-interest of certain property developers that make it very difficult for anyone to own a home. So my question is that as we fight for one country, two systems, what are, in fact, our core values within our system? Uh, I agree with you. I think that uh, our government, and perhaps even within the community, we're not doing as much as we can uh, to integrate ethnic minority. And in, in this area, there's, there's one simple thing that the government can do. If you will only allow ethnic minority mm, to have access to a proper education, mm, because the difficulty today is that, for example, a lot of uh, posts within the government are not open uh, to non-Chinese speaking people. But you make it almost impossible for the ethnic minority to get into schools where a, a reasonable standard of Chinese is being taught. Right? And I agree also, we should do more to protect the ethnic minority, domestic servants and whatnot. But it's an illustration of the malaise that generally affects this government. The government is perceived to be in a very, very weak position. It, we have a dysfunctional legislature, largely because of the policy that the chief executive has adopted. He's made it quite plain. Mm? These are my friends, these are my enemies. And if you don't agree with me, then you are necessarily my enemy. So you do not encourage trust and cooperation in the legislature. And if you give the message that you're not listening to people, then the members of the legislature will do what they can to impede the government at every turn. So difficult decisions and difficult proposals cannot get through the legislature. So the government's tendency today is anything remotely difficult or controversial are simply just swept under the carpet. But can, Hong Kong cannot continue for long. So I agree, not everything can be laid at the door of the erosion of one country, two systems. But it is a very, very large part mm, of the general concern that we have in Hong Kong. And it affects not just the local people, but it affects the foreign investment community too. Sounds like he's a good student of Chairman Mao, who <laughs> asked who are our friends and who are our enemies. <laughs> We're at the bewitching hour, but there's a lady here and there are two people at this microphone who've been waiting a long time. So I think what we'll do is, Ask your questions quickly, the three of you, and then I'll ask uh, Ms. Anson Chan if she'll wrap those up into some final comments for us. So quick, one, two, and then three. And um, I'm sorry for the others who've been waiting. 
so my question for Mrs. Chen is that, uh, as you pointed out, the uh, Hong Kong Basic Law has entitled Hong Kong to amend its selection method for its own chief executive, but it seems that that power is not absolute. Uh, it's not an absolute power according to the Basic Law because the same article also provides that that power is sub that amendment is subject to the China's National Congress approval. So it seems that the China Congress has the final say on the uh, selection method for the chief executive according to the basic law. So I want to know your opinion for that. Okay, and then quickly, the two people here. Hello, my name's Yang Li. Uh, my question is, I understand it's really important for Hong Kong to define like the one one country and two systems. But do you think aside from protecting Hong Kong's integrity, Hong Kong could also play a role in influencing the mainland China's culture and political system? And if so, in what ways can Hong Kong do? And the gentleman there for the last question. So I was wondering, um, given that the recent elections in Taiwan were seen as a rejection of a lot of mainland China in a lot of ways, do you see any important similarities or lessons that can be gained from comparing the situation of Taiwan and Hong Kong, or are they just too different? Okay, so please, and any other final <laughs> thoughts you'd like to give us? Uh, I'm trying to remember all the... Uh, all, this all was, the does, okay, now the does Beijing really okay. have the final say in the, through the National um, People's Congress? Uh, it is true that uh, under the basic law, uh, Beijing has the final right of interpretation of Hong Kong laws. Mm. But that said, mm, I must point out that uh, in the basic law, mm, there is a promise about giving Hong Kong people universal suffrage, okay? And the definition <laughs> for universal suffrage mm, is laid out in the basic law, having regard to the two international conventions. Mm. And if they mean that, then there must be freedom to nominate people we would like to see stand for election and the ability to vote for them. There can be no buts about this. Okay. Um, second question. Was about the impact back into the mainland and culture and the third one was about well, I, I think the Hong best Kong way, and Taiwan. Is I think the best way we can influence culture and influence, you know, uh, views is precisely by keeping to our lifestyles, mm, keeping to uh, the rule of law, having an independent judiciary, respecting basic rights, particularly rights such as freedom of expression, of publication, uh, press freedom, academic freedom. Academic freedom is particularly important. Mm. And, and by example, influencing what is happening in mainland China, okay? And finally, Taiwan. Um, I think Taiwan takes a look at what has happened to one country, two systems in Hong Kong, and they have already made it quite plain that one country, two systems <laughs> is not for them. But then, I think when Deng Xiaoping crafted one country, two systems way back in the 1970s, he really had in mind more Taiwan than Hong Kong. Mm. Okay? Uh, um, I think that all eyes will be on the new president who will take office in May. In May. Uh, and what stance uh, uh, she will take. But I can say one thing. We in Hong Kong are very envious of the fact that at least in Taiwan, <laughs> they have the right freely to vote for their leaders, a right which we hope to achieve sooner rather than later. 
Okay, please uh, join me in thank you very much. much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. Thank you.